0: Today's sermon text is from Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also." It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification.
1: Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Maybe you are like me. You grew up singing that song. For half a second, I thought about actually starting singing it to you, but I thought Danielle would keel over in embarrassment, so decided not to go that way. Maybe you're like me. Uh, I, I first heard it in second grade, public school. I think the setting threw me because at the time I only knew of one Abraham, and his name was Lincoln. And so I was never quite sure how I was one of his sons, and my buddies were too, but that's how I interpreted what the teacher sang. It's nice to grow up and learn some things, you know. The Abraham of the Bible, if he's new to you, is the father of the Jewish people, our forefather according to the flesh, Paul says in verse 1, chapter 4. In fact, Abraham is referred to as father seven times in this chapter. But we find out his fatherhood extends not only to the Jews, but to Gentiles like like us as well. How do we get in the family? Well, we learned last week that Abraham is the father of all who believe. Abraham is the father of everyone who walks in the footsteps of his faith. Our passage today is just part two of that same argument. As Tom said a couple of weeks back, Paul could have stopped at the mountain peak of chapter 3, verse 26. We saw that every single one of us stands under the judgment of God because of our sin. But God has provided a way for us to be made right with him, such that his holiness and his mercy are both preserved. He has made a way for the ungodly to be justified. And it's not through the works of the law. It's through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul's burden at this point in his letter is to buttress that argument. He's got to answer some objections. You can almost hear his detractors saying, you know, hang on a minute, Paul, you you haven't talked about Abraham yet. You know, what about him? He's the, he's the father, founder of the Jewish people. So if this paradigm of yours doesn't work for him, then it doesn't work for anybody. <clears throat> so you see Paul posing the question in verse one, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham? Or as the NIV puts it, what then shall we say that Abraham discovered in this matter? As Nick explained to us last week, Abraham was not made right with God by works, not by obedience. No, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul is quoting Genesis fifteen six. It's the first time the word believe occurs in the Old Testament, and it's connected to being made right with God. This is a very significant verse. In fact, in a sense, all Paul is doing in chapter 4 is expositing this one verse. The blessing of being counted righteous does not come through good works. It doesn't come through circumcision. It doesn't come through the law. It comes through faith in the God who makes promises. So we'll first look at God's promise to Abraham in verses 13 through 17. Secondly, Abraham's faith in God, verses 18 through 22. And then finally, our faith in Jesus, twenty-three. Through 25. First, God's promise to Abraham. And I'm going to try to answer two questions under this heading. Number one, what is the promise? And then secondly, how does it come? Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So this is the first time the word promise occurs in the letter. It's going to show up three more times in this chapter alone. We see the promise is not only to Abraham, but it's carried forward to his offspring as well. And the promise is that Abraham would be heir of the world. That's quite a promise. So we've got to go back to Genesis to understand what's, what's going on here. So Abraham, actually Abram at the time, he shows up in a genealogy list at the end of Genesis 11, right after the Tower of Babel story. Abram is just your run-of-the-mill, ancient, Near Eastern pagan he's from Ur of the Chaldeans and we're introduced to his wife Sarai and all we're given at this point about her is one short tragic sentence now Sarai was barren she had no child but God all of a sudden speaks to this unremarkable childless couple beginning of Genesis 12 he tells Abram go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you At that time, these things defined a person. But God says he's to leave all those things behind, all those sources of personal identity, leave them behind, his nation and his father's family, because God has something else in mind for him and his wife. So listen to the astounding grace of God. He says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. <clears throat> and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is a major turning point in the book of Genesis. Up until now we've seen the world wrecked because of Adam's fall into sin. If you go back and read Genesis up until this point you will count five curses. Adam's sin brought curses into the world. But all of a sudden, there's an insignificant man named Abram from the city of Ur and he receives a fivefold blessing. What is God doing here? Through Abram and his offspring, those curses will be reversed. So Abram is a, is a new kind of Adam. And you note the words, in you. In you, God says, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So to be in someone is to be a member of of a people for whom that person represents. God says Abram will be the covenantal representative of a vast people, a people yet to be born. And if you are in him, the blessings he receives, you receive. So you have to imagine at this point, Abram is confronted with an obvious dilemma. My wife, my wife is barren and yet God is promising to make of me a great Nation. He's not told how this is going to come about or how long he's going to have to wait. But don't you just love how God sets these things up? Humanly speaking, this is impossible. But God has made a promise. And that means it's ironclad. So the story continues, and God repeats and reaffirms this promise again in Genesis 15. And then in Genesis 17, one night, God brings him outside, tells him to look at the sky and to count the stars, if you are able, he says, so shall your offspring be. Paul picks that up in verse 18 of our text this morning. 24 years pass, and the original promise in Genesis 12 is enlarged. God said, I will make of you a great nation. But then in Genesis 17, he said, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Paul cites this in verses 17 and 18. So Abram becomes Abraham, which means father of a multitude. Sarai becomes Sarah, which means princess. God tells Abraham that kings shall come from you. And the land that he's to inherit will be an everlasting possession. So this promise is Epic. It keeps picking up more and more freight as the years pass by. God tells him in Genesis 22 that his offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. So I think, in summary fashion, when Paul writes in verse 13 that Abraham would be heir of the world, he's expressing all that God has promised his people offspring, blessing and land Abraham would have many many descendants from many nations and he would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth but i can't help but point out hebrews chapter 11 where we're told abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is god and that his descendants were seeking a homeland they they desire a better country that is a heavenly one So it's possible that Paul has in mind here God's promise of the new heavens and the new earth. That too will be Abraham's reward for him and for all his offspring. But how does he get it? How is the promise actually delivered? That's the main concern of this passage. Paul says it didn't come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. The promise to Abraham was not fulfilled through his law keeping. No, the promise came through faith. Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul has already made the point that Abraham was counted righteous by faith before he was circumcised. That's verses 10 through 12. And as for the law in its full form, you know, that's not going to come for another 500 years. Abraham has already been saved and the Mosaic law hasn't even been given yet. But Paul says in verses 14 and 15 that the law couldn't save anyone anyway. If the promise is delivered through law keeping, then the promise is void. If it's only law keepers that get the inheritance, then there will be no heirs because no one can keep the law. And there are no true adherents of the law because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the law just serves to point that out. The law stands before us and says, you are a law breaker. In this way, the law only brings wrath, not salvation. The law cannot give us the promised inheritance. And to make his point even more emphatic, Paul gives us the difficult phrase, where there is no law, there is no transgression. In verse 15, Paul is not saying that if you don't know the law, then you're not guilty of sin. He's already cleared that up back in chapter two, verse 12. We're all guilty whether you have the law or not. Here I think Paul is using the word transgression in a technical sense. So a transgression is not just sin, it's, it's, it's a specific kind of sin. A transgression is a deliberate violation of a direct command from God, something God has clearly revealed to us. So every transgression is sin, but not every sin is a transgression. Tim Keller, he offers the illustration of uh, trespassing on private property. If you do that, you're guilty of trespassing. But if you see a sign that says, private property, keep out, and you go ahead and trespass, well, now you've become a transgressor. Paul, he's talking to the Jews. The Jews had the written code book of God, and knowing full well what they were doing, They broke it. Keller says, Knowing the law does not make us heirs. It makes us doubly guilty. So this really serves as a warning to us. If you boast in your religious and social conservatism, if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, I'm just reading from chapter 2, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, Paul says, Beware. There is a coming day when God will judge the secrets of men. And the law that you hold pridefully over others will turn around to accuse you. So friends, the law only increases our accountability before God. Clearly the promise of God's blessing cannot come through the law. And this shows us how bad it really is. This shows us our inborn spiritual condition. We we are at enmity with God. We we are spiritually dead. We have nothing in us that would incline us towards God. We want to be independent from God. We want to chart our own course and go our own way. We are rebels at heart. We refuse to submit to God's authority. We've broken his law and we've thrown off his kindness. And God in response has vowed that he will righteously judge sinners with eternal death. And attempted law-keeping cannot save us. We are like Abraham and Sarah in their old age and barren womb. No spiritual life is gonna come from us. We have nothing to offer but nothingness. So dear friends, that is why it depends on faith. Faith in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. God's promise rests on God's grace. That's the only way the inheritance could come to Abraham and it's the only way the inheritance could come to us. We receive the unmerited favor of God by faith and faith alone, which means we do not trust in our own efforts. We trust another, namely God, to come through for us and save us from our sins. All who enter through this door of faith will be admitted not only the adherent of the law which here i take to mean jewish believers in christ but also everyone in this room who shares the faith of abraham for you the promise is guaranteed so are you in this family of faith are you numbered with the nations that were promised to abraham are you an heir are you a child of the promise do you believe like abraham believed Nick reminded us last week that it's not the amount of faith that saves you, but it's the object of your faith. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations and the presence of the God in whom he believed. So Abraham's faith was in this God, the God who does things that are completely beyond the reach of men and women, the God who raises the dead, the God who causes a barren womb to produce a child. The God who brought everything we see into existence out of nothing. It's that creative power. So God can speak to a 100-year-old man who's married to a woman who has never been able to bear children and say, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. God makes this promise and Abraham believes this promise in the presence of God, which demonstrates the certainty of the promise. Just like swearing before a judge, that that oath becomes binding. But there's no higher authority than God. God makes a vow in God's own presence. So this promise is unalterable and irrevocable. And so Abraham puts his trust in this God. He believes something exists in the future that he cannot presently see, all because God has said so. That's the nature of And so we come to that in verses 18 through 22, Paul gives us a real to life description of what it looks like to walk by faith from the human perspective, Abraham's faith in God. Now, remember verse three earlier in the chapter, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What does this believing look like? What is the nature of justifying faith? So I have for you five facets of faith. They all kind of hang together. Number one, faith involves a trust transfer. So it's not just a matter of trusting God, but it's losing trust in yourself or anything else besides God. You see this when Abraham leaves behind his country and his kindred, those precious identity markers for a man. Hebrews 11.8 says, by faith Abraham obeyed God when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. He had to trust God. Abraham also had to lose faith in his own body. Paul says in verse 19 that it was as good as debt. And as for Sarah, Paul uses a word that's normally not used to describe a woman's barrenness. The ESV uses barrenness, but the word is actually deadness. So Paul is intentionally drawing attention to the God who gives life to the dead in deliberately using that word. God's promise of offspring would not come through the natural order unless God did something supernatural. And that is precisely what Abraham trusts God to do. Number two, faith means facing facts head on. The text says Abraham considered his own body and he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Generally speaking, 100-year-old men married to elderly women who have never been able to have children do not find themselves pregnant. just doesn't tend to happen. In hope, he believed against hope. So yeah, from the human perspective, Abraham had every reason to give up on the hope that he and Sarah could bear a child. So faith is not shutting your eyes to reality. It's, it's believing that God can overcome it. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. But that doesn't mean faith is irrational. Douglas Moo says, Christian faith is not a leap into the dark. It's a leap into the security of God's word and promise. That's the safest place to stand. A third facet of faith. Faith is believing that God is able to do what he promised. That's straight from verse 21. We could also add here that faith involves worship. Verse 20 says, Abraham grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Faith magnifies the power of God to accomplish what he says. And this gives God glory, which is what the unbelievers in chapter one did not do. They exchanged the glory of God and worshiped idols of their own making. But those who put their faith in God consider him to be all powerful and able and worthy of our worship. And now, with that said, walking faith out over time does not deny some degree of doubting. That's number four. Faith does not deny some degree of doubting. So, if you know the Genesis account, you might be struggling to reconcile it with what we're reading here. In verse 19, Abraham did not weaken in faith. Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But boy, if you go back and read Genesis, it appears that he did indeed waver. God gives the promise and the years are passing, still no child. So Abraham, he tries to bring it about in his own power. He sleeps with Sarah's servant, Hagar, in Genesis 16, and Ishmael is born. When God reaffirms the promise in Genesis 17, no, Abraham, Sarah will indeed bear a son. And that promise Blessing was going to come through him. Abraham falls on his face and laughs. And he pleads that God might bring his promise through Ishmael instead. So, what are we to do with this? First of all, it's crystal clear Abraham is a sinner. We've already seen uh, back in verse 5 that God justifies the ungodly. So, that must have been shocking to Jewish ears. Paul is saying that Abraham was an ungodly man who needed to be made right with God. And second, it's true that Abraham's trust in God was not perfect, but nevertheless his faith persevered. Uh, the Greek verb in verse 20 can be translated to waver or to be divided. So it's the same word used in James 1, 6 to describe the double-minded man. It's the same word in Romans fourteen twenty three to describe the opposite of faith. So the point is, Abraham did not have a deeply entrenched, permanent attitude of distrust towards God. He certainly had moments of hesitation and failure along the way, but his faith in God persisted. His faith was not completely extinguished. He, he held on. And, and this should be comforting to us. There's a reason Paul calls it the fight of faith in 1 Timothy chapter 6. The evidence of a genuine faith is revealed over time in the midst of many trials and temptations. The true cry of faith says, I believe, help my unbelief. And notice it says Abraham grew strong in his faith. So that means through waiting and sometimes significant struggling over the span of 24 years, his faith actually grew stronger. And that should be our expectation as well. As we continue clinging to God day by day, year after year, through many dangers, toils, and snares, God will see us through. He grows our faith. And finally, number five, faith means trusting the very words of God. And sometimes that's all you're going to have. Verse 18, Abraham believed that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. Abraham, he had nothing else to go on. He couldn't trust his body. He couldn't trust his feelings. He couldn't trust popular opinion. But he did have the very words of God. So do we have warrant to believe something will come about when all the evidence is pointing in the opposite direction? Generally, no. That's what fools do. Unless we have a direct word from God. And that's precisely what we have in Scripture And then let all the evidence stack as high as the mountains that we are on a fool's errand, no matter. God has said he would bring it about and we can put our trust there. So if you want to weaken in your faith, just stop reading your Bible. It will work every time. Stop thinking about it. By all means, don't meditate on it. Where does Paul go to first to defend justification by faith in chapter four? Verse three He writes, what does the scripture say? Boy, that's how we should start every day and face every problem. My feelings, my feelings are sometimes all over the place. And so my faith needs something fixed. I need the very words of God to anchor me. Words like, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 22, the words counted to him here. They are crucial to understand. Remember, Abraham was not righteous. He was ungodly. Through faith, Abraham was counted righteous. He was reckoned righteous. God credited righteousness to him, meaning God conferred a status on him that was not there before. He gained a new legal position that was not inherently his. So, so we're not talking about ethical righteousness here. He did not actually become righteous in himself. Uh, God did not infuse Abraham with righteousness like a a turkey that's been injected with with seasoning. That's not how it works. No, God counted him as righteous. So why why is that distinction important? An infused righteousness would not be true to our natures. Uh, Abraham's sinful inclinations remained, and so do ours. So, if it's a moral or ethical righteousness that God fills us up with, boy, we're going to lose it immediately. Because, you know, what do you do when you sin? So, in the end, if that's the way it works, the emphasis is on you and your ability to maintain this righteousness before God. And that means say goodbye to security. Where you stand with God is anybody's guess. Praise God, that's not the way it is. No, Abraham was counted righteous. Through faith, not by works. And this was by the sheer grace of God. He was was not perfect and blameless in himself, but God regarded him as if he was. That's the astounding news of the gospel. God justifies the ungodly. So, did you hear that? That means it's possible to be loved by God and yet still be a sinner. That's the gospel. Sinners who come to God with empty hands, having nothing to offer, trusting his word alone, casting themselves on his mercy, will find him to be merciful. And then verse 23 comes crashing in with this incredible statement. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Abraham's faith in God is a template for our faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the third and final point, our faith in Jesus. So Paul here, he's rounding out his exposition of Genesis 15, 6 with a direct application to his Christian readers there in Rome. And we get to look at the full sweep of redemptive history that has been unfolding since Adam's fall. And we find ourselves all who believe in those lines written by Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit. It was counted to him. Paul writes, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Abraham believed that God would produce life even though his body was as good as dead. He believed God would provide him offspring and that he would make his name great and that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. So evidently, the offspring of the woman prophesied to crush the head of the serpent way back in Genesis 3 will be among the children of Abraham. And now from the sea of descendants that have come from his line has come one so great that his very name will cause knees to bow and tongues to confess. The announcement came at night to some unassuming shepherds for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord and this child Jesus the Christ the seed of Abraham and the son of God would be handed over to executioners for your sin and Nick said it best last week some of you need to stop doubting that God loves you if you are bearing a horrible load of sin and guilt this morning bear it no more Jesus Christ has dealt with your sins, and he's come back from the dead to give you a right standing with God. Trust him, and you will be counted righteous. If you are in the grip of some heart-wrenching circumstance this morning, like Abraham and Sarah, who waited upon the Lord year after year, look again to his promises, rest in his promises and remember your faithful friend is alive sometimes that's all we have when you wake up in the morning just to remember Jesus Christ is alive no matter what I'm facing he has been raised from the dead so brothers and sisters behold what God has done in ages past on your behalf and is now fulfilled in Christ lay hold of him by faith. Let's take a moment now to reflect and I'll close this in prayer.